The work of this church in the world is realized through the generous financial support of all who call this place home. Along with the gifts and time and talent, ours is a shared ministry. You have a role to play here. Church membership is open to all. For more information, go to uusf.org.
as is the custom of this community, we are going to recognize two losses that happened recently. First, Charles Frias, who passed away this month. Charles, who hasn't been able to be here in recent years, but is known by many and whose loss brings deep sadness. We extinguish a candle in honor of his life. And this week, we received news of the death of the Reverend David Keyes, whose connection to this church, whose service to our movement, particularly churches in times of turbulence and transition, and in service of our partner churches in Romania, left an impact that will endure far beyond him. We extinguish a candle in honor of his life, too. Good morning to everybody. I think we sang the storm is passing over last week, but it was a week too soon. Either that or the universe has a very bad sense of humor, so I'm glad to see you all here, dry, mostly, maybe, for the moment. And for those of you at home, stay home, at least for a little while. I'm Vanessa Southern. I am the senior minister of this community, and I'm joined by a whole host of people who are making this morning's worship possible. They are listed in your order of service. And so we take a moment to give thanks for all that makes this gathering possible, including all of you. And those of you who are joining remotely, I feel like if you could all just turn and wave. Jackson, are you the one that we should be waving to? Well, wave. We're glad to have you all with us here. If any children trickle in uh, during the beginning of service, if you don't mind just going over to their families and telling them if they'd like to, there's a drumming circle happening, being led for them in the chapel as they begin their time in the church year this year. If this is your first time here, the order of worship should guide you through, but we will also guide you through this set of rituals that is our worship together. And if you want to get the order of service or find out more about the congregation through our weekly newsletter, what we call our flame, please just fill out one of the visitor connectors cards actually in front of you, or there's a table right outside the sanctuary and they're bright orangish yellow. Fill one out and we'll Make sure you get that material every week, including if you're joining us remotely, you'll get an easy way to connect to the live stream and the downloadable order of service. If folks can stay for coffee hour, great. If you're a leader in the congregation, our Council for Committees is meeting, so please do stay to find out information that we think will be important to support you as a leader and also to hear anything you need as a leader. Lots of groups will be represented there today to support you in your work and tell you what they're doing to do just that. If you are joining remotely, there's a Zoom social hour, and we'd invite you to join that. We have some questions we want to ask you. So thank you in advance for your input, and the Zoom link will be put in the chat, which Joe Chapeau will give to you. And Joe's there anytime if you have any questions. I just wanted to add the quick COVID note, which is that Carmen and I will take our masks off when we're speaking, and other people who've tested 
negative this morning with their antigen test who are singing might do so too, um, but we'll wear our masks for the rest of service and we really appreciate what you all are doing to help each other feel safe and protected in wearing your masks and keeping distance and all the things that we do to make sure we continue through this pandemic as whole as possible. Today's service is stepping into that meta question that religion has always asked, which is, what is the good life? What are we supposed to be about in this life? And as we both ask and answer it, we enter this worship hour, like we do all moments in our lives, ideally, in seeking answers to this question, like treasure hunters looking for some line of music, some words, something that comes to us in a moment of silence that we hold, we wrestle with, inspires us, we try to live into, into just the week ahead, until we're back together to gather up something else to take with us in our journey. So in that spirit, welcome to worship. I'm gonna light our blue candle in honor of all of you who are here in body and all who are with us through our live stream, bringing us all together into this moment. And I'm gonna invite you to rise as you are able, body, spirit, to sing our first hymn. It's in your teal hymnals. It's hymn number 1000, Morning Has Come. Good morning. 
Please join me in the lighting our chalice. This is a symbol of Unitarian Universalism. For those of you at home, feel free to light your own candle or chalice if you have one to do so. Let's say these words together. We light this chalice for the light of truth, the warmth of love, and the fire of commitment. We light this symbol of our faith as we gather together. So I have a few brief invitations this morning. For our visitors and newer folks, just know that anything listed in the order of service is something you should feel yourself invited to participate in. For instance, this week after service, at about 1.30, Vanessa will leave with anyone who wants to join her to go to the main library to celebrate the legacy of African-American heroes highlighted in the book, Change Makers, Biographies of African-Americans Who Made a Difference. That book is based on the inspirations, murals of 95 inspiring African-Americans on the five exterior walls of the Ella Hill Hutch Community Center in the Western Edition. They were painted by Joseph Norris in 1999 and will involve a panel of speakers. It also is available online too, so if you can access it from home through the public library website. I know there's more announcements. What did I do with that? <laughs> Well, we have a couple of people I know we were going to invite forward, because I can see one of them right here. Yes. So Gina, why don't you come up and share with us your announcement? Thank you. And, and yes, I did test negative this morning, so I'm going to pull this down. Um, as you may remember, for, as part of our uh, end of year budget discussion, we always have this little line item that says we're going to raise some more money through our auction. And today, Today, we have our world-famous auctioneer right in the audience, Gary Lawrence. The, the auction will be October 16th, immediately after the service, and we have lots of fun planned for the day. So anyone uh, who's interested, who hasn't yet bought a ticket, we're selling them in the breezeway today. And also, if you would like to make a donation, uh, in the order of service, there is a URL that, that you can go do that, and if that's beyond your capabilities, uh, just come talk to us, and we'll be happy to, to help that along. So, Gary, thank you very much for joining us today, and I'm looking forward to seeing us all at the auction. Thank you very much. The lost has been found. So there are other invitations to meditate, to debate, to learn about and discuss the vital issues of our day. Please pay, pay special attention to the invitation to join the training on Saturday, 
around women's productive rights and our role as a people of a religious community to find and clarify our voice and our role in that conversation. October 1st. Here it said August 1st, so I knew that it wasn't that. <laughs> Please pick up letters to write as part of our working to get into good trouble by leaning into this election, reaching out to voters to get them to turn out in key districts around the country. All the materials and explanations are ready for you to literally pick up and add a personal note, and they will be mailed out by the election group. So I also have here that Judy is coming up. Is Judy? There you are. Oh. I wanted to say a little bit more about the training on October uh, 1st, because I think it's so important. It's being given by the Women's Rights Group. It's a new curriculum. and. We're trying a unique way of doing it. So the more people we can get there, the better. And you're going, oh God, it's all day. But it really is an important training. The purpose of it is to give us a dialogue, a conversation that can um, work against the 50 years that the religious right has for developing a reason to not have access to a full range of reproductive health. And so it's, the goals of the training are to get, get us to be comfortable with discussing reproductive health issues without shame or judgment or stigma, and to make these conversations a sacred space. It's to give us a toolbox to answer the inevitable questions, you know, and to reach out to people who we might not normally feel comfortable talking to. And it's also going to help us mobilize for action. Now, this training. It is all day, and it doesn't really replace any other activism you're doing. But I just think it's important. This is going to be a long game. We aren't going to turn over and have Roe v. Wade have access again in one election or one, a few weeks of marching. We're going to, need this we're going to be, need to be able to have this conversation and convince people how important and how moral an issue it is for everyone to have access to a full range of reproductive rights. So I hope that you will decide to spend your day with us and help us uh, through this curriculum and help us improve it and help us become a moral organization supporting women's access to reproductive rights. Thank you. So now let us take a few moments to greet one another.
All right, loves, that's a preview of Social Hour. And it's so good to see that we remember how to socialize, isn't it? Astounding. Even though it's a little odd sometimes. Even Lori Santos, who teaches at Yale, teaches the largest class, admitted in a podcast that lately she's found herself wondering how quickly she can get out of social gatherings. So, she's a professor of psychology too. So it's, you know, back in practice. So, let's sing together our meditation on breathing. For those of you who are new, the words are written in your order of service, really simple words, but an invitation to breathe in and breathe out and center ourselves deeply in this time together. We, this congregation, are bound not by creed, but by covenant, which is a word that means simply promises of the heart. There are the promises we make about how we want to be together in this search for truth and lives of meaning that we commit to engage in. The covenant words printed in your order of service are some of these promises. Please say them with me and then join me in singing our doxology. Love is the spirit of this church and service is its prayer. This is our great covenant to dwell together in peace to seek the truth in freedom, and to help one another.
Richard Rohr, a Franciscan priest, talks about the tragic dimension of life, which is the knowledge that we all come to have that life is in some ways fundamentally broken and full of pain and that it is still a gorgeous and an incredible gift. And we learn to hold both. As a faith, we try not to dwell too much on one without the other, to be a faith of hellfire and brimstone or a false denying faith of joy and unambiguous celebration. Both would deny the fullness of the life we know as true. So we carve out this moment in service where we recognize most weeks that there is human suffering in this world in the course of natural and human catastrophes. And we ring our gong in honor of some of those places and people that are present to us today where there is suffering and struggle. We ring our gong first this morning for the losses this week to COVID-19. This last week, 11,155 people died of COVID-19 globally. 1,932 in the United States. All of this part of a worldwide tidal wave of loss that each of us still holds on to a piece of. This week, we ring our gong once, additionally naming the loss of the life of the Queen of England but also holding all the complicated emotions her death has occasioned around the world. Both those who mourn the loss of a leader they admired, come to know as a part of their own life's reality, but also those for whom this moment reawakens the question of the history of oppression and colonial theft. That's been part of the monarchy and its long continuing effects in nations who will not be held accountable for the sources of their wealth. The story echoed in our own nation. So for the birthing pains of reconciliation and truth, we ring our gong once in grief and in hope. And finally, we ring our gong for the people of Ukraine, people in war everywhere, private wars of homes caught up in upheaval or in nations or between nations, struggles to wars of poverty and racism and homophobia, wars against women and all the suffering that we need not inflict on one another, on our planet, and for all all of us who work for peace and healing. We offer all of this up and our own private namings to this hour, surrounded as we are in this moment by the promise of what love and interdependence and community 
can awaken in us and make possible for us and for us in the world. So may we keep those we have named this morning in our thoughts and in our prayers, and may we ease the tide of human suffering this coming week, howsoever we can. I invite us to use the gong's ringing and its dissipation back into silence. It's the beginning of this invitation to gather ourselves, to do what we need to, to center ourselves. And if you are someone for whom being in motion or pacing or davening is what allows you to go deep inside, I invite you to do that. And if what you need is to center your body with your feet on the floor, or eyes downcast, if that helps, do that. Do what serves you. I invite us to pay attention to this sweet companion that we reside in full time as we always have. Feel any tension in our face and invite it to relax. Any knots and tension in our shoulders and invite it to melt. Feel any stiffness or tension in our arms dripping down from elbow to wrist and out the end of our fingers. To be aware of what we hold in our chest Release it if it's hard, constricted. And the same in our belly, in the generative center of pelvis. Feel any 
tension in our thighs, and again, let it also melt down past knees and calves, through our feet, let the world absorb it. Breathe in peace, deep peace. And breathe out love for yourself. Breathe in through the top of your head and breathe out through your feet, all you need to let go of. Set it all aside for a moment. And surrender into being. Breathe. And surrender. and let it be enough. And now I invite you back into this moment. Open your eyes if they've been closed. Do what you need to to be present in this community, renewed.
It is said that St. Francis of Assisi said on his deathbed, I have done what is mine to do, now you do yours. Then there were my dad's words on his deathbed a couple days before he died. The hot water heater had broken and mom's kitchen floor was being flooded. I went to his bedside urgently asking him, what should I do? He was the one who usually fixed everything. He looked at me and calmly said, well, I guess you'll have to fix it. It was at that moment that I realized he would no longer be here to do such things. The messages from St. Francis and my father were clear. There comes a time when we have to take responsibility to fix things and to care about and care for one another. Whether it be broken water heaters or unjust policies, assuring people have their basic needs met, or working for world peace. Caring about people and being of service, doing what one can to help, was and still is a foundational culture in my family. I grew up being formed by biblical parables of the Good Samaritan, Jesus feeding 5,000, in one sitting, and messages such as, love one another as I have loved you. When Vanessa asked me what matters for me in life and how has that changed over time, I realized that those foundational mandates and messages have remained constant, though contexts have continually changed. In my youth and childhood, it was doing things like collecting money in the rice bowl during Lent to be sent to feed the hungry throughout the world. It was helping to serve pancakes at the Lions Club breakfast that provided funds for them to do their charity work. It was taking turns to stay overnight with my grandmother after my grandfather died so she wouldn't have to be alone. When I look at these formative years, I realize that inherent in them was it wasn't just me, but rather I was one of a group of people, a community of people, church, town, neighbors, my family, who were working together to make a difference for someone, somewhere, somehow both locally and in faraway places. There were people noticing needs and taking responsibility to make them known and to gather others to care about and to respond. I also realized that the constancy throughout each time and place is that it ultimately was and is about the love of others and a desire that all may have what they need. Not only having their basic human needs met, like housing, food, and health care, 
but also companionship and community and pathways to realize their potential. That early formation in my church and family is still firm, but what has changed is a recognition of my personal and our collective responsibility to notice what is happening to our earth and to people, to care about what is happening locally and worldwide, and to take responsibility to initiate actions and not just wait for someone else to do it, considering my own participation or my own help optional. Whether working for peace in our world and addressing the issues that are impoverishing masses of people and irreparably damaging our earth, or fixing broken water heaters, I am not off the hook. No matter how complicated or hopeless it feels, my care and my participation, together with others, does make a difference. So along with the words of St. Francis as he tells us that he has done what is his to do, and now we must do ours, or my dad saying, well, I guess you'll have to fix it, I add the quote from Rilke, that Kay Jorgensen and I printed in our very first brochure, laying the foundation for our work. For one human being to love another, that is the most difficult of all our tasks, the ultimate, the last test and proof, the work for which all other work is but preparation. Isn't to love one another a wonderful task? And now our morning offering for the works and the ministries of this community here and beyond these walls will be both given and gratefully received.
far too much fun up there. Far too, and it used to be hidden, but now that we have the cameras, we all know. Our reading is from a book that I've been rereading from Richard Rohr, that Franciscan priest, called Falling Upward, a spirituality for the two halves of life. He writes this. As many others have said in different ways, we all seem to suffer from a tragic case of mistaken identity. Life is a matter of becoming fully and consciously who we already are but it is a self that we largely do not know. It's as though we are all suffering from a giant case of amnesia. As mentioned before, the protagonists in so many fairy tales are already nobles, royal, children of monarchs or even of the gods. But their identity is hidden from them and the storyline pivots around this discovery. They have to grow up to fathom their own identity. That fathoming is the very purpose of the journey. Here ends our reading.
I just want to name that service is going long. So if you are someone who's highly kinetic like me and you're starting to feel like you might feel trapped, I want to give, I'm honest, I want to give you permission to get up and walk and move around and do what you need to to stay present. I remember when I fell in love with philosophy and religious studies. It wasn't classes that talked about all those fancy words like epistemology and teleology that I would come to love later. It was freshman year, spring quarter, this bearded professor who taught a class on the good life. The question, what is the good life? And at that point, I think I was sure that there was one answer and that we would find it in that class. And then I would have my roadmap and my compass. And at 19 years of age, that was incredibly efficient and a very good use of one class, one semester. But all these years later, what I really think is that that question keeps morphing and you and I, all of us, are in the ongoing class of asking and answering this question. Richard Rohr, the Franciscan priest whose writing we've been reading from this morning, he's the founder of the Center for Action and Contemplation in Albuquerque, New Mexico. In this book, Falling Upward, he talks about what he thinks are the spiritual pieces of work that you and I need to do in both halves of our life. And it seemed worthwhile for us to reflect on our own life and maybe what that spiritual work might be and where we might be in it as we step into this year of life together. Richard Rohr, you should know, as you probably could discern in that reading, thinks that there is a true self in each of us, put there, stamped into us before we were born, and it's our job to discover, rediscover it from that amnesia he wrote about. It begins to be then the work, particularly of the first half of life, to figure out some basic components of what all that is that is us. Establishing who we are, cultivating key relationships, finding some security in the world. Establishing an identity. How many of us remember trying on some different versions of ourselves for size as we figured out which one fit? I'm sure we all know people, maybe it was us occasionally, who put forward a new or tweaked version of who we thought we wanted to be when we started a new school or moved to a new city or started a new job. I have a cousin who in eighth grade, after a very boring, highly introverted eighth grade year, decided that she would start high school acting as if she were a social butterfly, the kind she had seen on TV shows. And she had a great ninth grade year. So she found some identity over time that melded those two pieces of who she could be in the world to one that felt like it fit. And I imagine we've all had versions of this leaning into different scripts we think we might enjoy as our own. 
Andy Stanley, who's a non-denominational Christian megachurch leader, said in a podcast I was listening to over the summer that he thinks that in our 20s, most of us are trying to prove something to ourselves. And in our 30s, we are trying to prove something to other people. That can be part of the work too, the proving of things, right? The achievements that we take on because they confirm who or what we want to think about ourselves or reveal what we're capable of. All the things that we do to confirm to ourselves and others that we are smart, capable, desirable, worldly, fun. Whatever it is we desperately want to be true or fear is not. And maybe, too, as Rohr says, we are all trying to find what the Greek philosopher Archimedes called a lever and a place to stand so that we can move the world just a little bit. And, he adds, the world would be much worse off if we did not do this first and important task. There's so much to learn in the first half of life, and all of it that we can only learn by stepping into it. The dating that we do to figure out who we want to be in relationships and who we want to be in relationship with. The internships and jobs we do to see if we feel useful and happy a calling in a work, or if it just suits us as something to take up that many hours in our week. And all of it, all of it's about the development of skills and abilities, confidence and knowledge that confirms to us and others who we think we are. It is, as Rohr says, about discovering the I, the one deep down, the one who is supposed to write the story of this life and some clues about what that script might be. So at this point, I just want to take a moment for an aside, a footnote about this talk of the two halves of life and the generalizing even about what we do in our 20s and what we might do in our 30s, to name that all of it can be distractingly generalizing and too simplistic. And just to name that out loud, Rohr says, and I agree, that the stages of our lives, our spiritual and personal work, is not entirely chronological, not in the way that a word like halves of life implies or the way Andy Stanley talks about it. We all have met folks who spend most of life on the first half of life obsessions, right? <laughs> who can never have enough levers in their hand, enough accomplishments to show the world and themselves that they are worthy, who never figure out how to be in genuine relationships, reciprocal and loving. And all of us, perhaps, We'll get stuck occasionally in one piece of this work for longer than we'd like. 
And similarly, there are other people who it seems just get the second half of life work super young. I think we often, I think the term old souls is what we mean when we sometimes use that phrase. So there's huge fluidity in this conversation. And we take all the generalizations for just guideposts. And additionally, it's worth noting that none of us can skip the lessons in any part of life. As Adrienne Marie Brown, who's a healer and an activist, wrote when she was writing about leaders whose lives she looks up, up to in her own work, she writes, it reminds me that they all seem to have this solid core of truth within themselves that cannot be shaken by external pressures. Those truths resonate in me when I read or hear about them, even without the context of the whole spiritual journey of that person. But I know that to truly understand, to truly be able to transform myself and develop that unflappable core, I cannot live vicariously through their spiritual lessons. I have to walk my own path. The tasks of the first half of life become this foundation. And we can't move forward without being solidly on them, not well. The friends, the clarity about boundaries, the resilience we learn from failing and struggling, the truths we own firsthand and so unshakably so, the community and the loved ones we gather around us, we will need it all in the journey. So we work on all of these tasks in the first half of life, approximately. And then at some point, many of us start to pivot we might be stuck in some parts of what Bill Plotkin calls our survival dance, but then at some point we find ourselves doing something that looks a little more like what he calls a sacred dance. Sometimes that happens, that pivot in an aha moment where a crystallization happens. Sometimes, often actually, it can happen around a significant loss or setback that reorients us. But I've also seen it happen after moments of great achievement, when someone realizes they've done everything they set out to do and it doesn't feel like enough. All those moments that awaken an aching sense that there has to be something more than what we focused on and achieved and proved and defined as valuable and remarkable as all of it is. And the shift shows up in funny ways. Maybe one day we notice we care less about what other people think, except for those whose hearts and judgments we've come to trust. And instead, we're led more and more by something inside that has its own compass and north star. 
We can be still super happy to make an impact in the world the way we were talking about even this morning, the way Judy was talking about with our lever and our place to stand in the world. But perhaps we're not trying to prove anything to anyone else anymore. Maybe we notice we don't even care if what we move the world to do has our name on it. Increasingly, all we find that matters is that the world is changed for the better in ways that matter to us. The tasks for the first half of life become the foundation and then we step forward into this other work or way of working in the world. It's interesting how that proving drive is powerful, like a race car engine with this amazing horsepower, I think, and it is heady to be moved through the world by it if you ever have been. So I think it can be disorienting at first not to have that driving the show, but it does open these questions of what next wide open, the sense of what you want to do with your one wild and precious life, as poet Mary Oliver calls it. It's the same question, but the answers start to look different and feel different. When you're young, Richard Rohr writes, you define yourself by differentiating yourself from others, and now you look for the things we all share in common. You find happiness in a likeness, which has become much more obvious to you now. And you don't need to dwell in the differences between people or exaggerate the problems. Maybe you create a lot less drama. We start, we start, he says, and I think he's right, to hold our opinions a little more lightly and a little less absolutely. Having seen that the world is so varied and big and complicated that very little is actually unambiguous and absolute. And moreover, that we're never going to get anywhere with an instinct to dominate or persuade, but that conflict is resolved more in a spirit of deep listening and empathy and a modeling of a deeper peace that invites people to trust and to move together through hard places. Second half of lifers have often learned to do what they think is right, but release on the consequences. Because we've learned we can't control those. And despite all the world's deep brokenness, that tragic sense of life we talked about earlier, we do come to know the bounty we have received. And this all more awakening of gratitude that at a certain point can only be expressed in a desire to give back. It's what Eric Erickson called the generative stage in life or the generative person. Lives that start to take from their own abundance, wisdom, whatever they can, 
and try to plow it back generously into the world, handing off what we couldn't finish, what we loved, blessings before we go. I wonder where all of you see yourself in this broad sketch. Which work, as you listened, you found that you think, ah, oh, yeah, I'm about that work right now. Are you asking what your gifts are, who you want to be in relationship, who you leave out of your circle of acceptance and how you can do work to make your heart bigger, how you give back, how you prepare yourself to let go. It's so important to know our questions so we can live our questions, as the poet Rainier, Rainier Marie Rilke said in his letter to the young poet. Rohr thinks, by the way, a little plug, that community is a big help in all of this. It's why one of the first half-of-life tasks is to find your community. Rarely does the hero in the hero's journey go it alone, get there by themselves. Communities keep us accountable and cheer us along the way. And we come to them not as passive spectators, but as treasure hunters, like we talked about this morning partners committing to be awake together. What is the good life? Oh, that it would have been answered in a semester class that met twice a week for an hour each time. Oh, that bearded professor must have been laughing up his sleeve to see us arrive, sure that we would walk away with a paper and an answer at the end. But here we are in the master class of it all together. So blessings to everyone in the tasks that you think are yours right now. Those you're supposed to attend to and blessings living into the questions that are alive for you right now. And blessings to us all as we support one another in this journey out to see, to face mystery, which is a piece of this journey, and to know our deeper selves and the script that is ours to write and to bless the world as we write it. Amen. So Mark Sumner got on his knees today in the worship planning meeting, not today, this week, in the worship planning meeting, and asked us to sing this hymn. It's maybe his favorite, one of his top favorites. So we're doing this, sing out boldly, 
but we have to learn it a little bit. I don't know how many of you are familiar with it. So the choir is going to sing it through first, and then we're going to join in and sing the first verse again, and then I think the second verse. Also, just a quick note while I have a chance, the, prelude, the postlude today is different too. It's Nimrod from Enigma Variations by Edward Elgar. So I invite you to rise in body or spirit to sing hymn number 359 in honor and love of Mark Sumner. Woo! you to put down your hymnals, but remain standing. If you know the people next to you, feel free to join hands. If you don't, until monkeypox passes, we'll just extend our arms in a gesture of opening, vulnerability, offering of ourselves to each other in the world. And now in our comings and our goings, may the light of love shine upon us out from within us and be gracious unto us and grant us peace. For this is the day we are given. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Amen. <laughs> 